Hey, Max. Did you ever think you would find yourself in a situation where digging up dead bodies was boring? I'm sorry, did you say digging up or dicking up? Digging with a G. Oh, then no. Well, buckle up. Welcome to Second to Die, a horror fiction podcast where we talk about lots of things. And sometimes horror. And sometimes horror. I'm Max. And I'm Cole. And I'm sorry, you can't picture digging up a dead body ever being boring, but dicking up apparently could be, which understandably, if that's not your jam, I imagine that's quite horrifying. But if that is your jam, which is not okay, I imagine it's exciting every single time. I don't know. It's not like they're moving around. Oh, boy. I really shouldn't have gone down this train of conversation. It's going to get bad. <laughs> it's going to get real bad. And then you're going to have to cut a whole bunch. <laughs> okay. This is this is not the necrophilia episode. Or is it? <laughs> or is it? You don't know my book. Well, that's true. You're, and I can see that your book may have something to do with death. So we'll get to that. Maybe. Okay. So keep listening, dear listener. Maybe you'll hear some necrophilia. Maybe you won't. There's not necrophilia. I'm just going to go ahead and spoil that. Well, before we get to any of that anyways, I have a movie. Surprise, except not a surprise. It's every week. I'm doing a 2017 movie called Happy Death Day. Oh, I've even heard of this one. Isn't there like a baby? Well, the killer wears a baby mask. Yes, that's what I meant. Sorry. Yeah, I should have clarified. This movie was suggested to me. So... By who? I actually don't remember. It was a long time ago. Oh, okay. So it is, it, it, it was pretty successful. So I think a lot of people kind of recognize it. It is a black comedy slasher film. Why gotta be black? I like my comedy like I like my dick. <laughs> oh, black and puncturing your insides? Yes. We're not putting any of this into this episode. No. You could have cut it. <laughs> you could have left it before your comment. So, okay. The movie was directed by Christopher Landon, written by Scott Lobdell. It has a few characters. The main ones are uh, the actress is Jessica Roth. She plays Teresa Geldman. She goes, unfortunately, by the nickname of Tree. Her name is Teresa. So they call her Tree. It's like... Real unacceptable. Oh, no. Hey, Tree. Mm, no. No. But that's what they call her. And then Israel Broussard plays the character Carter Davis. He's kind of like... He ends up being like her eventual sort of love interest in, in the thing. He is... The movie takes place on a college campus. Actually. Does he go by Turter? He, he just goes by Carter. But he's like the geeky kid who's actually very, very cute. But they put him in like... An unbuttoned flannel with a t-shirt underneath it. So he's like obviously like nerdy and unpopular. And glasses. Does he have glasses? He doesn't have glasses. But it it's just dumb because it's like the way that he looks, his attractiveness, he would never be the unpopular kid. But he's not in a fraternity, whereas Tree is in a sorority. Mm. And they all go to, well, they go to a university. The movie 100% takes place in Louisiana because at one point there's a uh, policeman and he's wearing a Louisiana 
policeman's uniform. It's filmed at Loyola University, which is where I went to undergraduate, which is here, but they don't specifically call it that. But there's a lot of local New Orleans references. There's like a Crescent City Comics sticker on one of the dorm room doors. It is a real Loyola dorm. In fact, it is the dorm that I lived in my freshman year. Not the exact room. No, 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 no. Just Just the same dorm building. Okay. Also, if you're ever in town, Crescent City Comics is super amazing and you should go. It is very nice. So, this film was first announced... In July of 2007, and Megan Fox was slated to be to star in it, but it kind of fell by, it was in soft production, it fell by the wayside, and it wasn't resurrected until 2016, and then they had Jessica Roth play the lead in it. As we talked about, it does have a masked killer. The baby mask was constructed by Tony Gardner. He is the same person who made the ghost face mask for the Scream franchise. Interesting. Mm-hmm. I once had a patron come into the library wearing one of those baby masks on the back of his head. Why? What justification is that? I would just like to point out that there generally is not justification at all whatsoever for the eccentric behavior of library patrons. You just roll with it. There can I tell you there was there's some sort I do not play sports ball nor do I follow it, but there was some sort of like voter thing about naming some local baseball team for New Orleans. And it came down to two choices, and I can't remember what the other choice was, but the one that won was literally the baby batters because it was like a king cake baby is their mascot, but that is not what baby batter means. Oh, no. (laughs) Anyway. Oh, no. Yeah, they're a real team. Google them. Anyways, so like I said, it was filmed at Loyola. The filming took five weeks. The film actually had a different ending which I'll talk about after the movie, that they screened, but it screened really negatively. Like, audiences did not love it, so they ended up changing it to the ending that I'll tell you about. But all in all, it had a budget of $4.8 million and grossed $125.5 million worldwide. Oh, wow. All right. Yeah, so successful. Anyways, let's get to the movie. We open up. The main character, Tree, wakes up in a Loyola dorm room, quite hungover and not looking her best. And Carter is there. It is Carter's dorm room. One moment, please. I have to play a song for you. No. Another song? Laura and I seriously get the songs that you play on this podcast stuck in our head all the time. Not at all helped by the fact that I will walk past her at work and literally just be like, am I not pretty enough? But then like the side effect is it gets stuck in my head too. Okay, so basically, she wakes up in the dorm room. The reason that this is important is because you hear the song a few times throughout the movie. I'll talk about it later. But she wakes up, and her phone goes off, and this is her ringtone. (laughs) I I just like it. I just like it. Is this a Groundhog Day movie? We'll get to that. (sighs) Fucking Christ. So, she wakes up hearing that. Okay. They have a little back and forth, and then she leaves the dorm room to go walk across campus to her sorority house, which is, of course, like a fantastic mansion in St. Charles. That is not what sorority houses look like in New Orleans. In fact... Actually, if I I may I'll re, I'll look into this to confirm this, but when I was going to school here and I think now sororities actually cannot have houses here. 
fraternities have houses, but sororities can't have houses because there was basically this, like, I think it was like an anti-brothel law that forbade it here in the city. This is this is literally the world we live in. Oh, my Lord. Yeah, I'm 99% sure that there are still no sorority houses in New Orleans, only fraternity houses. That's that old world charm that we're known for. Yeah. I know people are like, oh, the South is so charming. <laughs> yeah, it's real fucking charming. But women can't live together because they'll start a brothel. Yeah, it, it, that's exactly what it is. There's, there was some sort of law that prevented it. Anyways. Prostitution whores is. <laughs> so moving on, she goes to her sorority house. When she walks across campus, it's supposed to be this, like, I think, like, walk of shame type situation. But I don't believe in walk of shames. So we're not going to call it that. Anyways. While she's walking also, she runs into this guy, Tim, who confronts her about not texting back after their date. And she was like, she was like, who takes somebody to Subway on a first date? And he and Tim was like, well, we had fun. And she was like, no, you had fun. I was miserable. And it's not like you had a foot long. Rude. But then later in the movie, Tim is a very minor character. And later in the movie, you find out that Tim is gay and she ends up being a lot nicer to him. So anyway. That's a, it's a very side moment, but I'll just put it out there. So she gets to her sorority house and sorority sisters are like really rude, as you'd expect. And they're like slut shaming her and stuff for not coming home, whatever. We also learned that she's got a class with this like super hot British professor. And of course, he's married and having an affair with her. So that's not great. No. Yeah. All right. So there's a, so the sorority is having a meeting. On the campus. I'm just going to talk about some of the funny movies. This movie, I'll just get it out there, is actually very funny. It is really entertaining. There is some things I didn't like about it, but all in all, I give this a thumb up. It's it's pretty good, and I would watch this, and honestly, you might even enjoy it, because it's got quippy one-liners, and that will save so many movies. Oh my god, I love quippy one-liners so much. Yes, and a lot of them come from the sorority president, so they're all sitting around talking about the sorority and the sorority president is like talking about how they need to pick this year's charity event and she goes it's a quote i can say right now that there is no way we are doing the special needs art show again it totally freaked my shit out (laughs) oh no yeah and then shortly after this a sorority girl comes with a tray of food because it's lunchtime and puts it down and everyone is like what is that and then she's also got chocolate milk. And the sorority president is like, is that chocolate milk? And the girl goes, yeah, I missed breakfast. And she goes, we all miss breakfast, Becky. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> also, it's funny. Eating disorders aren't funny. We know. But it's funny. It's funny. Anyways, so... Then Tree is kind of walking at night. This skips a little bit. She's walking at night and she's murdered in a guy wearing a baby mask. Though, okay, so during this scene, it's really funny because she's running from him and she trips and falls. And normally I'm like, why do these idiots always fucking trip and fall in horror movies? But she's running down a street in New Orleans and it's like so torn up with like traffic cones and traffic barrels and like roped off areas and stuff that she trips over that shit and that is the most realistic portrayal of new orleans i have literally ever seen in a movie it's so true oh my god there is i mean y'all the streets here you think that your town might have bad streets or potholes or construction 
you have to come to New Orleans. It is unreal. We were literally chosen by Pizza Hut to receive funding to fill our potholes. Like, how sad is that? We have two potholes in like the block outside of our house that get filled with gravel periodically, but then instantly cave in because they're not actually doing it. And then we have a giant sinkhole that is like just waiting to consume a car. That's literally across the street. Mm-hmm. Anyways, so after being murdered, surprise, she wakes up in the dorm room because this is a Groundhog's Day movie. <laughs> Fuck me. So, yeah, she's basically having the same day over and over again. And you hear that song and that's kind of how you know it's the same day because she wakes up and she hears that song. There's always a song at the beginning. A fucking Groundhog Day style shit. I hate it. Yes. This movie, what, this is part of my final thoughts that I'll just say right now, though. This movie does have a lot of the same characteristics that Groundhog Groundhog's Day movies use, but it does add some freshness. And so I kind of didn't mind that. I'll get more into it, but let's move on. I'm only really going to point out some of the funny parts. <laughs> the first day that she has again, when she goes to soror- the sorority house, when she walks in and her sorority present again is basically slut shaming her, she goes... She has this weird look on her face and sorority president is like, what's wrong? And she goes, I'm having deja vu. And the president goes, oh, I have it all the time. It's supposed to mean that somebody's thinking about you while masturbating. I have it like five times a day. <laughs> I don't think that's what it means, but what the fuck? All right. And if that is what happens, I'm really sorry, Henry Cavill. Anyways. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so day two, she basically tries to avoid getting killed. But she does end up getting killed either way. She gets stabbed with a broken bong. It's okay. Day three, the kind of the same thing happens. Day four, she basically decides to tell Carter when she wakes up. And he believes her because she kind of like can predict some things and stuff like that. And because she's hot. <laughs> and because she's hot. You can forgive so much crazy if the person is hot. That's just how it is. We've probably both had past dating experiences where we did exactly that. I was going to say, that's how I wound up married. Just kidding. Cole is not crazy. To that extent. That he knows, though. (laughs) So, okay. We also learn, important, I'm just going to point this out. Because she woke up in the dorm room, and I forgot to say that she was, like, hella hungover. Like, she had, like, blacked out drunkness. We do learn on this day... That Carter did not have sex with her because she was too drunk, which is, of course, the proper way to behave. Tree had thought that she did, that he did, and was trying to, like, call him out. But they made it a point to note that she woke up super hungover and that he kind of, like, took her home and then slept on a different bed. So, Carter also brings up the idea that she should be using these, like, infinite lives that she has, if this is really going on, to solve her murder. And maybe that's what she needs to do. So... She does this really clever thing where she makes a list of all the people that have a grudge against her and uses each day to investigate one specific person and, like, kind of follow them around to make sure they're not the killer. They do it in this kind of, like, montage type way. It's, yeah. re- it's really cute. She also, like, they intersplice in things that she does, like, decides to use the opportunity to do things like dyeing her hair, like, weird colors and, like, cutting it herself. One day she walks naked across campus because why the fuck not? It's kind of like the normal Groundhog's Day thing when you realize like you have no consequences. So you just do whatever you want. Yeah. But in an interesting turn of events to the genre, 
One thing I did like is after a few of these sort of montage days, she ends up collapsing and they take her to the hospital and they realize that her body is sustaining scars from all of these deaths. So like if she's killed by like getting stabbed through the chest, like they had did x-rays on her and they're like, you have like all these weird scars like on your internal organs. Like you should be dead from these wounds, but you're not. You're just like healed, which I thought was interesting. That is an interesting twist. I like that. So she realizes she doesn't have infinite lives. She has basically as much as her body can sustain before it gives out. Eventually, they kind of realize that there's this escaped murderer. This part I didn't love. There's like this escaped murderer at the hospital and she basically like decides that he's the killer. And so she goes to the hospital to kill him. And then she thinks she's ended the loop, but she actually hasn't. She thinks she's ended the loop, so she eats this cupcake that her roommate gave her with Carter to, like, celebrate her finally figuring out how to solve all this. But then she wakes up again, and she puts it together that the killer was actually her roommate, and the cupcake was poisoned. Bum, bum, bum. Yeah, the only thing I didn't love about the roommate being the killer is because she basically says that she was the killer because the roommate was apparently interested in the professor that tree was sleeping with tree also ended it with the professor. She kind of like has this character growth and like becomes a better person throughout the whole thing. She ended with the professor. The professor was married. Also like I had kind of a weird issue and normally I don't care about this kind of stuff that much with the whole motive of the killer being you're sleeping with the guy that I like. I thought that that was really kind of like misogynistic in a disgusting way. It's very pit women against women sort of thing. Yeah. So I thought that was kind of dumb. But it is what it is. Ultimately, on the on that day, Tree and Lori and Lori's the roommate. They end up getting into a fight, and Tree kind of like kicks Lori out of a window, and Lori dies. That does end the loop. Also, in the wrap up, there's like a news report situation where they're interviewing the sorority president, and she's like, "I knew there was something wrong with Lori. She never wore any makeup. She never posted any cute selfies, and she owned a pair of Crocs." The Crocs are the dead giveaway. <laughs> Yeah, so that, okay, so when I first was watching it and I thought that that killer ended up, was the Lord escaped murderer when they were kind of alluding that he was the killer, that part was kind of obnoxious to me because I was like, if this is really the killer, I'm going to hate this. Then when it ended up being the roommate, I was like, this is okay. The original ending to the film, though, is that after, Lori was always the killer, but the original ending is that after Tree kills Lori, they take her to the hospital, and the doctor basically is like, stay away from pain medications because of some head injuries she's had. And then the nurse comes in and is like giving, is like, oh, I'm going to give you some pain medication. And Tree is like, oh, I can't have that. And then the nurse apparently is the professor's wife, and she goes, no, it's for my pain. And then she kills Tree in the hospital bed. That ending did not screen well. Understandably. <laughs> yeah, so they cut that whole situation. Anyways, I thought it was the killer thing was okay. I can these this will be my final thoughts because that's basically the whole movie. It is 100% watchable. And actually with the sort of one liners, it's rewatchable to me because it is funny. It kind of reminds me a little bit of Jawbreakers, which is another black comedy that I love. But it's fun. It's fast paced enough that you don't get bored. They do a lot of what maybe would be the boring stuff through a montage, which is nice. Ultimately, the killer isn't like the biggest thing. My one gripe with this movie, like my actual big gripe with it, is they do not explain the Groundhog Loop, why it's happening at all. 
Like, there's literally no justification for it. However, the movie does have a sequel. I've not seen the sequel, but the director who made the sequel did focus on... I haven't seen it. This is literally just what I read about it. The director said that when he was making the sequel, he wanted to focus on the loop and what was causing it. And he said that it, his pitch of it was that it's going to elevate the movie from being just a horror movie into a more back to the future genre style film where the sequel joins right where the first one left off for the purpose of explaining a lot of things that the first one didn't explain. So my guess is maybe some other people or the director also were kind of like, where's the explanation for this? And they're like, they're going to do that. I don't, I, I think somebody else gets it. My understanding of reading it is, and this honestly sounds so dumb to me, but I believe it has something to do with physics students working on like some experimental quantum reactor that like transports people to like a dimension where they repeat their days. That sounds so fucking dumb, but I digress. As a standalone movie, it is really funny. I would watch this movie. I know I've told everyone who the killer is. It doesn't even matter. You don't, comedies like this, you don't really watch them to figure out who the killer is. You watch them because it's like funny and you get to see all the cool parts. Also, the acting is quite good in it. The girl who plays the main character, she actually does a great job. And sometimes people who get cast in these roles, they're not like the greatest actresses. They're just really pretty. She's both pretty and good at this. Anyways, that's Happy Death Day. Now tell me what you're going to talk about. All right, Peaches. So this week, I am taking us back into modern horror. And this one is a little bit different. So this week, I'm going to talk to you about The Resurrectionist. The Lost Work of Dr. Spencer Black by E.B. Hudspeth. Okay. It was published in 2013, and I believe I actually got it on the day it was released because I happened to be at Barnes & Noble at the time. I used to spend a lot of time at Barnes & Noble, which means I've had it for about eight years, and I only just now read it. I swear I don't have a problem. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we have a lot of books sitting around, but that... I'm loving this cover, so I could see why you would maybe pick this up. Literally, the next part of my script is, based on the cover, I'm sure you can tell why I wanted it immediately. The cover and all of the interior illustrations, because there's a ton, were done by the author. Ooh. It's very striking. It's this like anatomical illustration of a skeleton, but the skeleton has wings. I love it. Like, I would, honestly, like, I would have, like, a framed like poster of that. Yeah, no, it's seriously, it's so good. Before we dive into the story itself, though, let's take a look at the blurb. Okay. Philadelphia, the late 1870s, a city of gas lamps, cobblestone streets, and horse-drawn carriages, and home to the controversial surgeon, Dr. Spencer Black. The son of a grave robber, young Dr. Black studies at Philadelphia's esteemed Academy of Medicine, where he develops an unconventional hypothesis. What if the world's most celebrated mythical beasts, mermaids, minotaurs, and satyrs, were in fact the evolutionary ancestors of humankind? Okay. Is this... No. It's... Wait. Is this the same time period as The Alienist? Or is that later? The Alienist is, like, a little bit later, but not okay. too far. I was... Okay. I'm just trying to get a good picture in my head, because also it kind of, like... Was, like, giving me those vibes a little bit. It's that same, like, Victoriana, but in America. 
Okay, I'm cool. Sort of vibe. I'm cool with it. I don't 100% understand what it's about from the blurb, but I'm interested to hear it. Don't get too interested. So this book is actually very short. Very, very short. The story itself is only about 60 pages. Oh. And I'll explain what the rest of the actual physical book is in a bit. But here's the most special thing about this book. So it's fiction, obviously, but it's written as if it is a biography. And until like the really fantastic elements start to come into play, you kind of have to remind yourself over and over and over again that it isn't real. Huh. Because at first it just seems like this kind of like crazy doctor. And it's like, hmm, the 1800s were a wild time. Like, I could see it. What type of doctor is he? Is he he's like uh, like a pathologist or something? I mean, he just goes to the school of medicine. Okay. And then is like a research doctor. And like, I'll talk about what he does in a minute. I guess, to be honest, I don't even know why I asked that. I don't know anything about doctors in the 1800s, but I'm assuming it was very different than now. There's some ghosts in your body. Stuff like that. Cut the ghosts out. So our main character, as we know, is named Spencer Black. And he is basically just like childhood trauma with legs. Mm. So his mom died in childbirth. And his father died when he was 17. But our real kicker here is that at age 11, his father, who was a famed surgeon, started bringing him along to dig up freshly dead bodies for his father to dissect for demonstrations. Like you do. It was actually a very common practice in the 1800s because the supply of bodies was very limited. So you either dug up your own or you got them illegally because that was the only way to teach anatomy in medical schools. Yeah. Isn't that like what body snatchers are? Grave robbers? Yeah. That's what they Grave robbers. Yeah. Actually, resurrectionists. Oh, is that what they're called? Yeah. Interesting. It's a different word for them. He goes on to medical school in his adulthood, and no one seems to be concerned at all when his like biggest obsession becomes people who are born with genetic mutations. Not only are they not concerned, they send him on his merry way. Not only do they send him on his merry way, but they actually gave him his own ward for him and a colleague to work in. And so they do a majority of their work operating on people who are born with, and I don't even know what the like correct term is. Like abnormalities? Abnormalities, maybe. Mutations feels weird. I feel like that's a frowned upon term, but like only slightly frowned upon. So it's not. Genetic exceptionalities. I think abnormalities is where we're going to go. Let's go abnormalities. Let's just go with abnormalities. For example, the one of the first people they operate on is a man with ectrodactyly, which is like the the lobster claw. Okay. Yeah. Thing. That's just one of the examples given. They operate on a girl who has like a second arm out of one shoulder and it's fused to her main arm. So she has like a little tiny arm attached to it. Like stuff like that. Sure. And I will say, before we start talking about Spencer's slow and then very swift descent into madness, there are many excerpts from his, like, fictional journals, but the fictional journals, again, like, make it seem kind of real, where he condemns people who treat those who are born with abnormalities as if they're outcasts. Like, he's, like, very vehemently, like, if you treat these people poorly, you're a piece of shit. So, good for Dr. Spencer on that count, nothing else. (laughs) 
Oh, you win some, you lose them. I know. So eventually, Spencer decides to publish a paper wherein he claims that the mythical beasts of old were real and that they are kind of like genetic ancestors of humans. And so people who are born with abnormalities are simply people who are born with this genetic memory of these creatures resurfacing in their bodies. Okay, I can I can follow that theory. He's like, the girl who had an extra arm, she was actually a harpy. It was supposed to be a wing, like that sort of thing. That's a, that's a bit of a leap, but okay. Well, obviously no one took him seriously. <laughs> but at that point, he was pretty harmless, so they were like, eh, whatever. Yeah. So good old Spence really started to take a downward turn when yet more trauma came into his life. So he gets married. They have a child named Alphonse. Is that the trauma? It, it was a trauma for me. Uh, if your name is Alphonse, I'm sorry that your parents named you Alphonse. A couple years after that, a girl with parasitic twin syndrome dies on the operating table. And shortly after that, his second child is born and dies almost immediately. Okay. And this causes him to spiral a bit. He spends less and less time working in the ward and more and more time in his personal study. And despite years of success in his career and another child being born totally healthy, he never really recovers from that. And eventually he makes his way to a sideshow. Hmm. I'm basically telling you the whole story of this. Sure. Um, But there's like little parts that I'm not saying. If you do choose to read this, don't read this. There he saw and purchased the preserved body of a child with what appeared to be the legs of a goat. So obviously this is a fawn. Gotta be a fawn. He continues publishing his papers about mythological ancestry, but that doesn't go over very well. So the Philadelphia Medical School eventually just strips his funding. So what's a somewhat unhinged scientist who's experiencing lots of trauma to do? Dig up dead bodies. Well, certainly not work on his trauma because he's a white man. <laughs> I say this as a white man. No, he joins the carnival. And as his act in this carnival, he grafts together human and animal remains and claims that they're the remains of mythical creatures. That's fair. I actually think that they did do that kind of stuff inside shows. Yes. Like they would like create mermaids and stuff yeah yes that's why this felt so real yeah we haven't got to the part that doesn't feel real yet (laughs) okay um or he'll be like these bone fragments are those of a minotaur i can tell but sadly so much of the skeleton is missing it's like (laughs) it's like bitch that's like a fragment of a bone how many bones do you want (laughs) oh um as i'm sure you can imagine he's pretty much laughed straight out of the carnival So he goes home, and what is a traumatized man to do now that he's been laughed at? Well, he starts making live grafts instead. Oh, Mm, yeah. Uh, There's like this shed on the property that his house is on. He does all of his experiments up there. Things start to reach a peak, not the only peak in this story. We pack a lot into 60 pages. When he invites his brother, wife, and children out to the shed, to see where he grafted wings onto the back of the family dog. Okay. And the dog's like, 
panting in agony, but is able to move the wings. Not able to fly because it's too heavy, but it can move the wings. Here's where things get fantastic because that wouldn't work. Correct. Uh, it's actually like really sad. Like, Poor the, doggos. I know. I was so upset. But so is his wife. <laughs> so she sends the boys out with the brother, shoots all of the animals in the shed to put them out of their misery because the dog was like the highlight, but there were basically all of these like tortured animals in agony in the shed. So she shot them all because at that point it was genuinely a mercy. Then she tries to shoot Spencer, but she has real shitty aim and hits him in the leg. And Spencer, oh my God, shady ass little bitch later on wrote in his fucking diary, his fucking diary wrote and was like, I could tell she was trying to hit my head. I guess I'm lucky she didn't shoot at the ceiling. Yikes. That's shady. Shady. Shady little queen. But then the she sets the shed on fire and then gets trapped inside. <laughs> Wait, she gets trapped inside? Yes. That's poor planning. Um, During this time, one of his sons has run away from the brother and returned, Alphonse, the older, So Spencer enlists his help as they take his mother into the woods and attempt a skin graft without anesthesia. Ouch. They basically spend two days working before Spencer gives up and Elise lives out the rest of her life unresponsive and dependent on opium because the pain drove her insane. Well, yeah. We're not done. (laughs) Spencer then eventually moved on to human grafting, of which he appeared at first to be successful. So he started his own traveling show. There's like a bird that he puts a woman's head on and it like flies around. Shit like that. Like completely unrealistic. It's whatever. But as I'm sure you can imagine, he's still shunned for, you know, chopping up and sewing together humans and animals. Yeah, some people would frown upon that kind of behavior. Still, he powered forward, eventually deciding to publish an anatomical text of these mythical creatures. And after six copies were printed, he withdrew the project and literally just vanished. And his son, Alphonse, who had helped with the operation of his mother as well as the human animal grafting, went on to carry on his father's work before being condemned to an asylum. And that's basically it. So he does never resurface again? No. He literally disappears in the middle of a paragraph. Like, there's no, like, in the middle of a paragraph that's not even the end of a chapter. Like, he just hmm. vanishes. And then the author's like, oh, here's some, like, loose ends. I feel like that kind of a story need. I feel like that kind of a story needs to have some sort of, like, repercussion for him. Like, I feel like people like that are supposed to be kind of, like, punished or have, or have, like, some sort of revelation that they... We're wrong. Like, like he should be killed by a grafted creature or something. Yeah. Guarded by a minotaur. Eh, it's just me. Now, that is just the first 60 pages. The rest of the book itself is called the Codex Extinct Animalia, which is Spencer Black's anatomical text. And frankly, the illustrations are stunningly pretty. Hmm. Like, I'll show them to you when we're done recording. They're so beautiful. And like I said, Hudspeth did them himself. And they're super detailed. And they're all anatomical. So all the bones and the muscles are labeled. And they're named and everything. 
And I'll get to my rating in a second, but spoiler alert, I would not recommend buying this book. That said, gentle listener, see if your local library has a copy because the illustrations are fantastic and well worth checking out the book just to look through the illustrations. They're super well done. Hmm. Now, before I get to my rating, I got an email after I posted this book and that was upcoming on our Goodreads. You can find us at Second to Die Pod. I post not only the upcoming book, but also the one after in case listeners want to read along. And the email had a preview. It said that someone had commented and it had a preview of the comment. But when I looked, the comment was deleted. And all I see in the email preview is the commenter's name, which I won't share because for all I know, they deleted it for privacy reasons. And then in all caps, I hated this book because. (laughs) But again, when I clicked the link, it was gone. That said, gentle commenter, if you're listening, I want to know why. I was certainly no fan of this book myself, but I love hearing what other people think about books that I've read. So please comment again on Goodreads or on our Instagram or our Twitter posts, also at Second to Die Pod, or email us at secondtodiepod at gmail.com because seriously, the fact that I don't know why you hated it haunts me. Yeah. I, I mean, we like hearing back from people to see what they think about the stuff that we've done. I mean, I love when people comment and give their opinion on the books and movies that we do. Part of me, like... I've toyed around with like creating a Facebook group so people can actually discuss horror movies. I just don't know how much interest is in that. So it's like, that's why I really haven't. But I like like on Instagram when people talk about stuff. Yeah, no, it's a lot of fun. I love it. All that said, I'm going to give this two out of five dead bodies exhumed before they rotted too much. The story was not good, honestly. It was like whatever, but I gave you the entertaining version of it. The problem is it's written like a textbook and not a very engaging textbook. Mm. Uh, So definitely skip the story there. But I still give it two stars because the illustrations are amazing. And also because it's very clear that the intent of the author was to write something that you were wondering if it was real or not. Even though you knew it was fiction, there was a part that had to remind yourself. And I think he was very successful. So that's that. That's The Resurrectionist. Uh, yeah. I mean, it sounds okay. Story-wise, story-wise is okay. It's not, to be honest, not like a concept that I haven't heard of before. But, I don't know. I still like that picture a lot. And the rest of the pictures are super cool. Seriously. They're amazing. That being said, if you were in The Resurrectionist, would you get killed? Doesn't sound like there's a lot of murder in this. I mean... He does, like, graft people to animals. Would you get grafted? Or if you could have, like, some sort of, like, a graft from an animal or, like, a mythological, like, manifestation of yourself, what would it be? Ew. I don't know. I think I would enjoy wings. I think a lot of people would probably say wings. I might want to be, like, a centaur because, you know... Gentle listener, Max just (laughs) flopped his arm as if it were an extremely large horse's penis. I'm always keeping it classy. (laughs) Oh, my husband. Anyway, would you die in Happy Death Day? (laughs) Well, 
I mean, if it were, if I were the main character and it was my birthday, probably. I mean, there's a lot of surprises. If I was a side character, obviously not. It's mainly about killing her. But if it was like me in her place, which is probably the most, the best way to look at it, I probably would get killed over and over, to be honest. And then I'd have to eventually try to figure out how to get out of that loop. It'd be kind of interesting. The whole time I'm thinking of it is like, I feel like that's a lot of pain to go through because she keeps getting killed in these like horrific ways. But it would be kind of fun to have like days that you just can like have no repercussions for. So that's that. That's that. Well, thank you so much for listening. If you would like to find us on social media, like I said, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter and Goodreads at Second to Die Pod. You can also email us questions, comments, concerns. If you want me to watch a movie or have Cole read a book, get on that list. It's Second to Die Pod at gmail.com. And remember, if you can't be first, you can always be second to die.